0: Amen. Good, morning. good morning. Welcome, good morning. Good morning. Welcome good morning. to Grace, the old Santa, let's let's worship our God together.
1: All right. Ooh. Mm-hmm.
2: Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we just uh, recognize that we are sinners, and that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And We know that heaven is a perfect and holy place where sin is not allowed. So we thank you, Lord, that you have a plan, and that your plan was Jesus Christ, and that you sent him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, Lord, that we might be made the righteousness of him through you. We just thank you so much, Lord, that uh, you do have a plan, that you love us so much that you sent your only son to die for us. We just pray, Lord, that you give us the Holy Spirit to embolden us to be those ambassadors for your sin. You just help us through this week, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: kind of sing a song that we haven't sung together as a church uh, before, but uh, the chorus says how long to sing this song, and uh, I think it's just one more picture of that already, but not yet that we experience here in this life. Um, We know the kingdom of God uh, is here, it's in us, but we long for the day when it will be fully realized, uh, and God will come for his own, so uh, let's sing these words together. praise you as the God of strength created all things by by your power God you hold them together Lord, we thank you for for your mercy to us God we pray that you'll hold us together this week God help us to trust you and you only to sustain us God I pray that you'll help us to listen now God give us hearts to hear what you have to say through your word In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
3: morning. If you will open up your Bibles, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to continue our series in Hebrews. We've got two weeks left. Can you believe that? Two weeks left. Um, I'm going to be a little sad, as you know. I'm going to be hanging on a little bit to renew this Old Testament series based on Hebrews 11, but we'll be looking at Old Testament texts and looking at uh, heroes from the Old Testament when we do that. Um, But we're in Hebrews 13, which in the Black Bibles Under the Chairs is page 1009. And we've been continuing this series called A Better Savior, in which we've tried to say that there are other saviors, they just can't really save you. I was just talking to a friend about this the other day that you might think from a better savior, there's this implication that Christ is not the only true savior. And I want to make that clear. He is the only real savior. He's the only ultimate savior. But we find these temporary saviors, right? We we find these little short-term fixes in our life, which are like band-aids, right? They might save us from a little discomfort. They might save us from a little pain. Uh, But what the scriptures tell us is those temporary things are really meant to point us to the full grace we can find ultimately in Jesus Christ. So every gift, every good thing that God gives us is, is meant as a reflection so that we would praise Him and praise His salvation, that ultimate salvation, that true Savior that we have in Jesus. In our text today, we're going to see a reflection of this theme uh, that is really repeated throughout Scripture, a great verse that embodies this theme is 1 John four nineteen, that says, we love because He first loved us. And so the idea is that uh, the title this morning is, He's a Better Helper. That because God is our ultimate helper, because he's the one that really empowers and equips us and is the one that is always faithful, because of that, we can take risks in life. We can actually love other people. Hey, what's up, Tim? We can reach out and, and we can do things that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to do in our own weakness, in our own uh, shallow way of, of living in self-centeredness because he's our helper we can step out. And there's this theme we're going to see throughout this section of chapter 13 that we should love others, that we should love uh, people outside of our own self, that we shouldn't be drawn in and selfish and concerned with our own interests, but in, uh, concerned with other people's interests because God helps us, therefore we can help other people, we can love other people. So follow along with me. Starting in verse 13, we're just going to look through uh, these first six verses 13, 1 through 6. It says, Let brotherly love. Continue. So really the theme, the application for everything he's going to tell us to do. He's going to give us really a laundry list of a bunch of things Christians should do here in this passage, starting with love each other, okay? Let brotherly love continue. Christians should be marked by love. Verse 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Literally the word hospitality is stranger love. So love everybody and then love strangers. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Making a reference back to Genesis 18 where where Abraham showed hospitality to these visitors that were angels. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the power for this whole section. He promises, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. He summarizes in verse 6, So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, we we thank you for that promise, that you are our helper. And God, I pray that you would help us to believe it. Lord, help us to take our confidence out out of ourselves, out of our circumstances, and put it in you, place our trust in you, that we would know that you help us, us, that we would be able to love others, to help others, to reach out, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This idea of the Lord being our helper um, is a reflection of a a theme that, that goes throughout Scripture. It's one of these things where he's quoting the Old Testament, and there's several passages that are very... Close to this, and depending on different translations from the Greek, it's hard to know exactly which Old Testament verse he's quoting because it's such a common theme. Because this idea is said so often that God is our helper. What's interesting is the first time that the word appears uh, is in uh, Genesis 2, right? Where God makes a helper for man, and and that's where woman comes along. That woman is to empower and help and support uh, her man, her husband. And then throughout Scripture, we get this picture of God being the one that helps us, being our strength, right? We're not strong enough to do it on our own, so we need God to help us and to support us, to encourage us, to lift us up in our weakness. And as I was thinking about what that looks like in real life, a tangible picture, one of the pictures we found here is someone helping someone climb up a cliff, right? That's a tangible picture of what it looks like uh, to help someone. I was remembering, uh, as a father, you get the opportunity to help your kids quite often, right? There's a lot of things you help your kids do, things they're not quite ready to do yet on their own, but, but you get to help them so they can learn to do it. You get to become their strength to support them. I remember helping my children to ride a bike. Any of you ever helped someone else ride a bike, right, for the first time, and in the beginning, it's basically you doing all the work, and then just sitting on it, right? I mean, you're supporting it, and you're making it happen, and then gradually you back off more and more so that they are now strong enough to do it on their own, but that's a picture of helping, right, supporting, holding on to the back of that seat as my kids would pedal around. Another picture I remember was uh, with just belaying. How many of you ever done any like, rock climbing or rappelling? you ever done that sort of thing? You've got a helper on the other end of the rope, right? To make sure if you slip, you're not going to fall and die, right? That's, that's the whole idea of having that helper on the other end of the rope. I've had the opportunity to take my kids' rock climbing several times. I can remember some points when uh, my kids really were helpless to climb. I remember a few times going when the older kids were around 9 and 10, the, young, the younger one was around 4, and the younger one just wasn't strong enough to pull herself up those handholds, right? And we were going on one of these rock-climbing walls, and I was belaying them, and she just couldn't quite get herself up there, so she needed even more help. The, the idea of the Scriptures is that because God is there to help us, we can do risky things. And, and as humans... Uh, I'm talking about rock climbing as an illustration of what it looks like to do risky things. But, but in real life, it, it's just loving other people. That's what he's talking about in chapter 13. He's saying the, the rock climbing in our life, the risking life and death as humans, is just reaching outside of ourselves and loving other people. And for some reason, that feels like we're taking our life in our hands. For some reason, we are so self-protective as human beings, we feel like that's like jumping off a cliff. And so we need to know that God is there holding the rope for us. We need to know that he's loving us so that we can do these risky things, so that we can step out of ourselves and help someone else. But he kind of starts, like I said, with this general idea of loving others. If you look in verse 1... We're calling this first section just love others, right? Don't just love yourself, but, but step outside yourself and love others. Verse 1, he says, Let brotherly love continue. probably heard the word Philadelphia. Got some people that have lived in Philadelphia or in the area, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, that's, that's Philos, is, is uh, brotherly love. And Delphia, uh, you're also, again, brothers. So it's love your brothers or have affection for your brothers. Uh, you've probably heard people talk about different Greek words. For love, Philos is the brotherly love. And then uh, agape is the kind of absolute, unconditional, covenantal love that's often used to describe God's love for us. Uh, but it's real common to use this other word for love. Philos is just, just brotherly love. Have affection. Care. right? Come alongside each other is the idea with this uh, word for love. And so he's saying in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect, then, he says. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That word is the same brotherly love word, philosophia, xenia. Have you ever heard the word xenophobia? you heard that? It's spelled with an X. It's kind of a weird word. and it basically means foreigner or outsider or stranger. So the word hospitality in the Bible is this compound word for show brotherly love to strangers, right? Show affection for outsiders. And so we're not just supposed to love insiders that are are, uh, outside of ourselves, but we're supposed to love outsiders, right? Just anyone. So he starts off in verse 1 and 2 really covering the whole gamut. He doesn't leave anybody out. He says, love your brothers and love everybody else too. But that's what we're supposed to be marked by as Christians. We're supposed to love other people. I was thinking about uh, this idea of how we're always to be loving those, even those that are oppressed, even those that our society tells us are unlovable. They're not worthy of love. Historically, Christians have stood in the gap to love other people that society has told us not to love. Historically, that's what Christians... Have done Now, if you're well-educated, you've had teachers that have told you that Christianity is responsible for all the problems in the world, right? But uh, if you actually study history, that's not true. Christians are actually responsible for all the hospitals and all the orphanages and for freeing the slaves. That's historically the reality, that Christians have been marked by loving people that society said they're not worth love. Those people are sick, don't touch them, they're gross. Or those people, are they're, they're less than human. Or those are slaves, they're, they're not worth your time, right? Historically, Christians have been marked by loving those kinds of people. He talks about this in verse 3. Look at verse 3, he says, Remember those who are in prison, as though you're in prison with them. He says, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. I'll add a picture here of uh, slaves, to remind us again, the, the slave trade, uh, was defeated in America and uh, in England and that, that campaign against slavery was led by Christians Christians were the abolitionists that said this is wrong I said also historically Christians are the ones that built hospitals hospitals didn't exist thousands of years ago and Christians started building hospitals and saying we need to care for the sick we need to help heal people because that's how God was towards us because God was our helper we should help other people and that historically has been what Christians have done in our society. Another thing that Christians have done is establish orphanages. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hear from a guest speaker who's going to talk about adoption. And how because God has adopted us into his family, we should be marked by adoption, by caring for the orphan and the widow. There's all kinds of ways that we as Christians can love and care for outsiders. As we think about caring for those that society says are not worth our love, I think uh, caring for the unborn is a way in our current society that we can do that. right? Our, our culture at large says that a, a baby in the mother 's womb is not a human. And we would say no, because what the Bible says that, that they're human, they're human beings. The Old Testament law actually has punishments if, if someone killed a mother and killed the, the child in the womb. They, they considered that a human. God considers that a person that he's crafting, that he's weaving together in the mother's womb. And so society says they're not human, they're not worth love. And again, Christians have been standing in the gap and saying, no, they're they're humans. We want to love them. We, We encourage you to get involved. Again, we've said this multiple times with Hope Pregnancy Center. It's a great way that you can get involved helping mothers and caring for those unborn children. We see... As it talks about caring for those, loving those that are outsiders, that there are kind of two categories that he says, remember these people, don't forget these people, because we're selfish, right, so it'd be easy to forget these people, so he uses the word remember in verse 3. Two categories of people, first, uh, literally those who are chained, says those who are in prison, but literally the word is those who are chained, remember those who are bound, as though you were bound with them, it repeats that word, remember those who are bound or in prison, as though you are in prison with them, remember those who are chained, as if you were chained also. So he's saying, sympathize with these people. As if you were experiencing the same hurt that they were experiencing. Which again reminds us of our God who entered into the pain of our world. Who lived in the pain that we live in. Who endured the temptations that we endure. Who endured the kind of abuse that we endure. Who died for us and gave his life for us as a missionary who entered into our world. So it says, first of all, remember this category, people, those who are chained, as if you're chained too. And then right after that, in verse 3, he says, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And it's the same kind of parallel construction, which literally you could say, remember also the mistreated, as if you also were mistreated in your body, would would be literally kind of because of the parallel way this is constructed. So he's saying, remember those who are chained, as if you're chained too. Remember those who are mistreated, as if you were receiving that In your own body too, because it says in the ESV, "Since you are in the body too, right? We're all in the body. We know what it feels like to be mistreated. We know what it feels like to endure pain, right?" So he's saying sympathize. Which just drop that. He's saying sympathize with others. Remember Hebrews four fifteen. Remember that verse where it says that that's the kind of God that we have. That that's the kind of high priest that we have that can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Let me read Hebrews four fifteen again. It says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's endured everything we've endured, he just hasn't sinned. He's endured every temptation we've endured, yet he just hasn't sinned. He hasn't given in to that temptation. And so in verse 16 it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They're saying, draw to God so that you can find that grace and that mercy to help you in your time of need. Here in 13, it's echoing that again. It's saying, live freely. Love other people because God is your help. Okay? If you believe that God is really your helper, that he will never forsake you, that he will never leave you, you will live your life in a, in a radically different way than everyone around you who, who is jockeying for position, who is fighting for for respect, who is clawing to get more out of this world, you will be able to give yourself away. You'll be able to give away your resources. You'll be able to love others instead of only loving yourself. Saying, Love brothers, love outsiders, love those who are bound and imprisoned, love those who are mistreated in any way. That should mark us as Christians. We had a great opportunity yesterday as a church. We had this service project where we got to work in the in the food pantry and clean up the thrift store. It was a great, great day. Thank you for everybody that jumped in there. Uh, there's other things that we do corporately as a church. Right, corporately, we we send money to the food pantry. Corporately as a church, we send money to Hope Pregnancy Center. Uh, corporately, we do these things to care for the least of these, right? But also as individuals, it should just mark your life. In, in the Old Testament, he he told uh, the Old Testament people who were basically all farmers. Continue to mark off part of your crops that you leave as leftovers for the poor, right? Just let your life be marked by always having some to share with others. And this would just be a standard marking of our life. Now, I'm not a farmer, right? So I, so I don't have a part of my crop that I can share, but my life should be marked by sharing some of what I have with others. Our, our life should be marked by generosity. Our, our, mark, our life should be marked by loving others, those that are outside, so I want to give you six concrete um, ways to love outsiders. Six concrete ways to, to be thinking about others instead of just yourself, okay? Just give me a laundry list here. This is basically what he's doing for us. I'm just trying to translate some things we can do in our, in our day, in our town, right? Um, one is just welcome people into this church. Just be a welcoming church. We've had people tell us, man, this is the friendliest church I've ever been to. And I've had other people tell me, nobody spoke to me at all, you know? And, and I don't... It just, it's just kind of like, who, who knows what happened. On some days it, it happens great, on other days it, it doesn't. But so that's a way you can love outsiders, right? You can just welcome other people. And, and here, I would encourage you, you, you may not be sure if they're outsiders or not, just welcome people anyway. Just welcome everybody, right? If we're just welcoming, if we're just loving each other, that's going to cover a multitude of sins, Peter says. Verse 2 says, uh, or not verse 2, but the second one on my on my list says... Um, Talk to us about inviting someone to your home as a part of a missional community. Would you be interested in in helping uh, people feel welcome in this town and grow in their faith? You might want to open up your home to to a small group, to a missional community, where we can form a community around the gospel, around the love God has for us, to be on mission together, growing in our faith uh, and loving our city well. The third thing I wanted to, to share was that you could give or volunteer with Hope Pregnancy Center, something we've been mentioning a lot lately. We've got the training coming up soon. Another is getting involved in jail ministry. There's a Christian jail ministry in town. I have several friends that are involved in that. If you're interested in getting involved in the jail ministry, I could connect you with that ministry. Another one is supporting the International Justice Mission. We keep cards for that. The International Justice Mission continues as a Christian organization to fight slavery and sexual trafficking uh, all over the world. And so if you want to be part of the ongoing abolitionist movement to fight slavery in the world, you can be a part of the international justice mission. Again, we have cards in, in the hallway for that. Uh, and then prayerfully consider starting something that I haven't listed. Read verses 1 through 3 and, and pray about it and ask God to lead you to do something that, that none of us have thought of yet, right? To start some new ministry that, that I haven't mentioned. I mean, God, God has given you the spirit. God can empower you. God can give you the creativity uh, to start something new. But the next thing that we see is that we should love purity. That we should love purity. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In our society, we're, we're very confused about sexuality, And again, we we find these temporary helps, right? We may think that serial relationships are what's going to really help us make the loneliness go away in our life, right? Or or we may uh, think that satisfying ourselves temporarily uh, through some kind of uh, alternative sexuality is is what's really going to be our help. But the scriptures tell us, no, God is your help. Because God is your helper, then you can follow uh, the way that he's shown us to live. You can actually love purity. You can actually live in a way that honors him. He gives two words here to avoid. He says sexually immor- sexual immorality and adulterous. Um, are those, those are the two categories, those are the two words he uses for those that, that God's judging, right? So, so one is um, the positive, is honor the marriage bed. And the other is the negative. He says God will judge the sexually immoral or the adulterous. Okay? What do those words mean? The, the uh, word for sexual immorality is "pornēia." You get the word pornography. And it's just a general word um, what we sometimes call linguistically a junk drawer word, right? It's just kind of a catch-all word for sexual immorality. Anything outside of what God has commanded. Uh, and people have done a lot of linguistic studies to, to help us understand in, in the Greek what they meant by this. But basically they're just saying kind of anything outside of, of uh, faithful uh, sexuality within the covenant of marriage. And then the other word is uh, markeia for adultery, which literally means you have a marriage and then you've broken that marriage by having uh, sexual relations with someone that's not your spouse. And so there's real clear directions in the scriptures. Someone brought me a Newsweek article the other day that they was talking about how really uh, the conservative kind of uh, traditional views of, of marriage and sexuality, they're really kind of confused because when you read the Bible, it, it really offers multiple other options. Right? Any of you see that Newsweek article? It was just a couple of weeks ago. In this Newsweek article, it was called like Sex in the Bible, and it discussed how, really, uh, sexuality in the Bible, there's all these crazy things going on, and therefore the Bible approves of all these crazy things going on. And I would, I would say that that's like the most terrible logic I've ever heard. That, I mean, it just makes no sense at all. The Bible, the, the story of the Bible is that man is broken, and we sin, and we need God's help because we sin, because we've rejected his standards. Because we've fallen short of what God has told us to do, we need his help. We need his correction. So yes, the Bible is filled with all kinds of alternative sexualities, which doesn't mean it approves of them. The Bible gives clear direction in the scriptures about uh, what sexuality is supposed to look like. And here, this is one of these crystal clear verses where it says, continue to honor the marriage bed. Celebrate marital sexuality. It's something that God invented. It's something that God thought up. And just thinking through the biology of how that process works in our life, it's mind-blowing to think that God actually came up with that. That wasn't like something the devil came up with, right? God, God invented that. God invented us as sexual beings, and he said it's to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. That's how God designed it, to be complementarian, right? Male, female, and to be covenantal within marriage, protected, safeguarded by these covenants, safeguarded by these promises. And so as Christians, we should enjoy and celebrate what God's given us, but, but within the proper balance. And we have a culture that is screaming at us all the time that it should look like something else. And we have to continue to work at honoring the marriage bed. He says literally. Continue to honor this thing that God has invented. Continue to honor this thing that God has created. And not veer off to the left and to the right and trying uh, different ways of doing these things, but honoring what God came up with. <coughs> I have a picture here of uh, wedding rings. Um, I I think what's really confusing to us in our culture is because of kind of the uh, evolutionary mindset we have, we tend to think that we're just animals, right? And God definitely used a lot of the same principles when he made us that he used when he made animals, right? I mean, there's some similarities in how he built us, which makes sense. He's the same designer. But the Bible also says that we have the image of God. So we're not animals. We're, we're different than animals in, in the idea that we should honor God, we should represent him. Ephesians 5 says that when a man and a woman love each other well, they give the world a picture of God's faithful, covenantal love for us. And so wedding rings, and I'm not trying to condemn you if you don't have rings, right? But uh, hopefully you have a marriage, which is a covenantal commitment, a lifelong commitment to each other, a promise. A ring is just a symbol of that promise, but what you have to have is the promise. And so I want to encourage you to make sure you understand that. Guys, don't just hang out with each other and say, well, we're just trying to figure out if, if we're really a fit. No, if, if you're not committed for a lifetime, then you're not a fit. That, that's, that's how the Bible defines it. Don't, don't try on this partner and try on that partner, but be willing to commit for a lifetime based on their character, based on the fact that you're both rowing in the same direction, that you both love God and that you both desire to use your life his glory, then be willing to commit for each other, and then being willing to measure up to that commitment, to continue to be faithful for a lifetime. Marriage is not easy, right? A lot of us have the mistaken notion from the romantic movies that if you really fall in love, which is like, talk about as if it's some passive thing that you just trip and it's a hole we fall into, right? If you're really in love you fall into this hole, then everything will be perfect, right? You'll wake up in the morning, you won't have bad breath. Um, you know, your hair will be fixed all the time and you'll always get along, you always like the same things but uh, any of you married is that, is that the way it goes in real life, right? yeah, it's not, that's not really how it works so, so marriage is a commitment to love someone else based on the power that we have in the gospel not based on your spouse being perfect and wonderful all the time based on God being your helper because God loves you, you can love other people my wife and I had that put in our rings in 1 John 4.19 because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We had that engraved in our rings to help us to remember that. That's how we're able to love each other. Not, not because of how great we are, not because of how great our spouse is, but because of how great God is. Singles, I want to challenge you to stay pure. Some of you have, have already fallen away from some standard you had before, from the standard of purity. And I would encourage you, you can recommit yourself to purity. Even if you fell away from the standards of purity you had in the past, you can remain pure. We're not animals. Purity is possible by God's grace. And so I want to challenge you to that. And married people, I'm going to challenge you to be faithful to your spouse, to love them. Not just a passive faithfulness like, okay, I'm not going to cheat on you. But pursue love. Proactively pursue your spouse. That's what God calls us to. The last thing I want us to look at is we should love contentment. He says in verse 5, we should love contentment. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This last section of how we use our money is the section in which he really talks about God's faithfulness to us. It's this final test, right? And how we see our things We're not generous with our things because we don't think God has been generous with us. Matthew 25 is the famous parable of the talents. And it says that the two men who invested and used and spent their talents for the glory of their master, they're the ones that trusted their master and thought that their master was generous. They had a generous view of their master, so they were generous with what they'd been given. But the last guy that buried his talent in the ground out of fear said, I did that because, Master, I knew you were harsh and you were unfair, and you take instead of giving. That was his view of the Master. And I would say that equates to today. If you are generous with what you've been given, it's because you think God is generous. If you are tight-fisted and hold on to what you have and are fighting for more, it's because you think God is tight-fisted with you. It's because you don't think God is gracious. It's because you don't think God is generous. Read verse 5 again. Keep your life free from the love of money. It's this... Again, another compound with this word philos, brotherly love, but it's ah, phil, argos, which is not love, silver, okay? Keep your life free from the love of silver, from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have a picture calculator here and some, I don't know, numbers, charts, graphs. I'm not so good at math. But anyway, we've got a guy here calculating some things and And right now, it's it's tax time for a lot of people, right? They're preparing their taxes. If if you haven't already prepared them already, we actually already finished ours. But um, as as you think about your year, right, the government tells us to think about it pretty hard in in the spring of every year as we prepare our taxes, you think about your money, your investments, ask yourself, has God been generous to me, and how am I being generous to others? Has God given to me, and then am I giving to others, because that's the command of Scripture. So that you would see God as generous, right? Just like we see in, in Matthew 25. That you would see the Master as a generous Master. That you would understand that God is a God who helps you. that He will never leave you nor forsake you. So that then you can be generous with others. 1 Timothy 6 is a great key passage to look up. Um, I, I talk to guys a lot about this in, in the Bible studies that I do on posts. In 1 Timothy 6, um, Paul is giving specific directions to Timothy of how to deal with rich people. Right? Because sometimes, um, kind of sometimes liberal Christianity would say it's a sin to be rich at all, right? And that that was Jesus' view of money. But I would say I would modify that and say, no, Jesus' view of money is always be, be willing to give it away. Always be willing, always hold it loosely. And Paul clarifies in First Timothy six, he says this in verse seventeen As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's saying those who are rich in this present age, and I know in your minds right now, um, pretty much all of you were thinking, well, he's not talking about me because I know somebody else that's richer than me. So that means I'm not rich, right? Right? But at, when you look at the global economy, you're the richest people in the world, just because you're here in America. The poorest person in this room, I'm happy to take any questions you have after the service. I'll, I'll argue this one with you. The poorest person in this room, you're still one of the richest people in the world. God has provided for your needs. Are you going to be generous with other people? Are you going to share what he's given you? The, the scriptural uh, kind of overarching theme is is the 10% of our money being set aside to share and to give towards ministries and give towards the poor. And then also this idea of gleaning I talked about uh, earlier. This idea of leaving kind of the edges of your crops. Always always be generous. Always have some of what you have that you're willing to share that with others. You're willing to give that away and say this is God's. This is to be a reflection of his generosity in the world. He finishes up this section saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? One of the best things about being a parent is, is getting to help your kids. Because it helps you get a better picture of God helping you. I remember taking my kids rock climbing. And when my youngest was not strong enough to reach the handholds, she couldn't get her little arms, you know, far enough up. And I was belaying her. And really the idea when you're belaying someone, belaying someone, is that you're just holding it so that if they fall, it's static, right? And they, they stop, and they don't fall down. So you're kind of catching the slack in the rope. But if you work really hard, you can pull that rope, and then you can actually pull them up, right? It works with the little 40-pound kid. Pretty hard, even with a 40-pound kid. And so that was what I had to do with my 4-year-old. She Her arms couldn't even reach the next handhold, so I got to... I had to kind of sit in the rope and pull it down and try to pull the slack, and I could kind of move her up the wall. And so I got to be the power and the enablement for her to move up that wall, to do that risky thing that she would absolutely not have been able to do otherwise. I think often we think of God as the one just there catching the slack, right? We think of God as the one just waiting in case we fall, but he's also the one pulling us all the way up. He's the one empowering us, giving us not just the rope, not just the strength. He's giving us every breath. He's giving us life. He woke you up this morning. So remember the Lord is your helper. And when you remember that, then you'll be able to love others. as well. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for helping us, being our strength. God, I pray that as we take communion this morning that we would remember your goodness to us and the sacrifice that you made to give
1: us life through your death and through your resurrection. We pray in Jesus.